Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. So today, we're sitting with Justin and Vitalik from the Ethereum Foundation. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Thank you. It's good to be here. First off, I'd say we should do some intros. Justin, you've already been on the show. You came on to do an episode about randomness, quite different from, I think, what we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. But welcome back. Thanks. Do you want to, even though you've already been on the show, do you want to just quickly say who you are? Yeah. So I'm Justin Drake. Um, um, I've been at the Ethereum Foundation since uh, late 2017, and I've uh, mostly been doing research on Ethereum 2.0, but I guess um, now that you know, the research for phase zero and phase one is to a very large extent done. Um, I've started to branch out a little bit to uh, zero knowledge proofs. Cool. And Vitalik, this is the first time you're joining us. Yeah, so I've been uh, part of the Ethereum Foundation since uh, 2014. Um, I've uh, started uh, doing NF ETH1 things and then have been doing NF ETH2 related uh, research and many other kind uh, of directions of uh, research uh, the whole time. And I guess, uh, yeah, recently with the uh, phase zero and phase one stuff, uh, kind of starting to get finished on the research side, I've been branching off into different things too. Yeah, I was kind of curious, like, what do you, what do you work on right now? What's your focus? I kind of jump between a few different things. Like, in the very, very recent time, I've been think, um, thinking about well, the thing that I presented at SPC yesterday, which was uh, kind of ways of moving beyond 50, uh, 51% attacks and recovering from uh, 51% attacks um, and trying to just make sure that the network can kind of coordinate on what to do in those kinds of situations. Um, also, of economic mechanism things, so like uh, following the kind of Gitcoin grants uh, quadratic fund, which I think you re- uh, received quite a, a bit of money from uh, last round, and uh, just kind of analyzing the economics of that, and then some other things before that. Hmm. So on the topic of uh, the name of the show, I'm curious to hear your guys' first introduction to zero knowledge proofs what was that like do you remember when you first came across them do you remember like was it that you immediately got the impact of that and like started thinking about applications or was it just a thing that went by i yeah remember hearing about them in uh, 2013 um it was either at or around the time of the bitcoin conference in uh, san jose then and this was uh, back when uh, zero coin um this was the uh, of older and more complicated protocol that had you know, 50 kilobyte transactions that used accumulators and, uh, and if a log-sized or proofs and other complex things was published. And um, I just remember just being really excited that such a thing is even possible. Um, and then soon after that, of course, there was uh, the zero cash um, proposal that was published uh, and uh, this uh, concept of well, what back then was called kind of SCIP, you know, Secure Computational Integrity and Privacy. And the concept was just kind of obviously, to, to me, kind of very mind-blowing and revolutionary. And so I was uh, doing this kind of traveling between uh, Bitcoin communities around the world at the time. And a few months later, I was in Israel and I... Uh, 
went over to uh, the Technion in Haifa and I uh, interviewed um, Ellie back then. So when I was uh, doing Bitcoin Magazine. So I've been kind of excited about them ever since. Did you, when you first learned about it, did you go back and like do all the research kind of back into the early papers? Or did you really come in when it, when it was more connected with blockchain? I definitely came in when it was more connected with block with uh, blockchains, and I knew about uh, kind of the existence of uh, some of those earlier protocols, but they just kind of seemed very kind of complicated, and just the fact that a lot of them weren't succinct in general purpose just meant to me that kind of there was nothing exciting about them. What about you, Justin? What was your first impression of them? So I think it was maybe 2015, around that time, zero cash. Um, I I had this company building on top of Bitcoin and Open Bazaar, so it was something that felt like uh, dark magic that I was very curious about, uh, but I didn't have the time to, um, you know, learn about them. But um, you know, my company wasn't doing too well in two thousand like seventeen, and so I kind of uh, decided to take a break and you know. To relax, I wanted to like learn about these zero knowledge proofs. Um, so I started writing a, a, a blog post, um, which I, I published in 2000, June 2017, which was about using zero knowledge proofs for scalability. And back then, no one was talking about it. It was all about privacy. Um, and I happened to be very, very lucky because uh, I, I emailed Ellie, like a, sent a cold email asking for review of this blog post. And he, he gave me feedback, but he also invited me to the Technion. Um, so I went to the Technion, and I remember when the, the, it was the speaker's dinner, and I was not a speaker, but for some reason, Ellie was like, hey, why, why don't you come? Like, he, he, he took a leap of faith on, on, on this random guy who I was back then. Um, and, you know, we, I remember the dinner where there was, like, there was Ellie, there was Zuko, there was Vitalik, and the imposter in the room was me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you were you the first person to write about that? Are you like this idea of the scaling, the zero knowledge proof, the scaling? Um, I think it was such an obvious idea that many people didn't bother writing it. But as far as I can tell, I was maybe one of the first. That's cool, because really it was a privacy. Like the whole idea of zero knowledge mm -hmm. proofs, even like the original inception, was very privacy focused. Right, and I mean it's natural that privacy is the first application because you have much smaller circuits. When you want to do scalability, then suddenly your, your circuits blow up and your prover time becomes unmanageable. Mm. And so is that that's around the time that you joined the Ethereum Foundation? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we, I, I remember having a quick chat with Vitalik. Um, what happened is that I was so excited about zero-knowledge proofs, but then Vitalik like poured a lot of cold water and he said... He said <laughs> Um, but what about the data availability problem? So I went back home and I spent like several weeks thinking about the data availability problem. And um, after a few weeks, I had these these ideas, which I think, but at the time, not many people were talking about, um, namely around RSA accumulators. And so I, I emailed Vitalik and we had this uh, back and forth. And um, like a few weeks later, he, he offered to join the foundation. Do you remember that, Vitalik? Yeah, I mean... In my defense, um, at the time, half the community was denying that the data availability problem existed. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, know we both made progress. Yeah. So one of the reasons that I really wanted to do an interview with, with you guys was that I started to notice that the Ethereum Foundation was sort of snatching up some really good zero-knowledge proof researchers. And yet, and I think we've actually mentioned this a couple times in 
previous episodes, we weren't we aren't completely clear as to why. Like, what are the researchers doing in Ethereum, and what are they working on? At what la- kind of at what levels? At what layers? But maybe before we go into that, I think what would be really interesting for us to understand is a little bit like what is ETH research or what is the Ethereum research team? What is, you know, what do you guys do generally? And then maybe we can figure out where the zero knowledge proofs fit in. I mean, maybe if it's Alex should talk about the, the prehistory, but from my point of view, um, in the early days, a lot of the research was uh, done by a very, very small team, possibly to a large extent, just one person. Um, I mean, it's not completely true, right? There was uh, people like like Vlad and, and Gavin. and But when, when I joined, um, it was, I think Danny had just joined and um, the research team was surprisingly small. I was shocked at how small the project was. You had this, you know, this multi-billion dollar project and we were going to upgrade EVE 2.0 and there was like three people doing research. Um, as in the theoretical research, we also have this other part of the research team, which is all around the uh, prototyping, uh, especially implementing the ideas in Python and, and seeing how that works out. Um, but now I think we've taken a different philosophy where we try we try and be proactive on, on hiring. So, um, you know, I've hired a bunch of people. Um, I think Danny has also uh, made some hires. Um, and now we we try to build, you know, a whole team. So we like a, a whole team around cryptography and zero knowledge. So what, so what is, e, like, when I say ETH Research, I realize I'm mixing it up because there's a website, there's a resource called ETH Research. This is the Ethereum Foundation Research Team. So what did it look like, or what's the history of it from your perspective, Vitalik? Yeah, so maybe 2014 through 2017 or so, and it was myself and Vlad mostly, and, and Gavin for the first year as well, um, and then Gavin and have went off to do parody, which then have went off to do Polkadot. Um, I think the main focuses, uh, kind of from the beginning, were kind of primarily proof of stake and charting. And these are kind of the things that we said to the community that we would do even way back in 2014, and have as answers for well, you know, what about the blockchain and of burning a lot of energy? What about the blockchain not being scalable? And we said that, you know, we would figure out these things, we had ideas, but we would improve on them. And there was this long period of time, and that was even longer because I think both myself and Vlad kind of came in not really understanding Byzantine fault tolerance theory, uh, there not being good explanations of uh, any of these uh, BFT algorithms, not understanding a lot of other you know, things in protocol design, but then you know, we learned, and then over, t- uh, over time, you know, Vlad started his you know, CBC direction, um, and then I have started uh, work with you know, what I called you know, minimal slashing conditions, which eventually turned into Casper FFG. Uh, so at the beginning, it was this kind of small motley group of people that were uh, kind of just continually working on these things while, you know, jumping between whatever other things that the, they were doing. And then at some point, I think in 2017, we started to realize that zero knowledge is something that, you know, we need to take much more seriously. Um, there was this uh, event uh, at uh, IC3. This is these sort of annual boot camps that we have in the summer. And uh, the one in, I think it was either 2016 or 2017, uh, Zcash people were there, and we were there, and like, uh, 
had a chance to um, ask some of them a bunch of questions about how ZK Snarks worked, uh, which was really nice. That was uh, when the idea for uh, including the you know, elliptic curve pairing uh, precompiles into Ethereum was kind of born. And um, there was also this prototype that kind of quickly made a precompile and then and have used, made, built an application on it. This was kind of Zoe Zcash on Ethereum. And a year later, that became uh, a th an actual thing. There was uh, the uh, Byzantium hard fork that added that precompile and... People kind of started experimenting and kind of building on it. And I think just even that being real and just there being the real possibility of uh, building zero-knowledge proof-based uh, applications on Ethereum just kind of really galvanized a lot of attention from everyone. Hmm. And so that's kind of where this idea came maybe originally to start focusing a little bit more on zero-knowledge proofs. Yep. I'm curious what you see uh, sort of the mandate of the foundation because some of the research as you say is very focused like if you look at proof of stake research and like consensus research it's very much about solving a problem mm -hmm. that exists on the chain today but zero knowledge research starts moving more in like the direction of fundamental research like we're just researching for the sake of maybe we'll find discover something interesting yeah and i think at the beginning, it was a more kind of application-oriented. It's like, hey, we want to have an internal zero-knowledge competency so that we can do things like building kind of at least the core of, say, um, anonymous voting systems or just zero-knowledge-proof verifiers that people can put into their applications more easily and things like that. And then... Over time, I, I, we've definitely started uh, doing more and more of just kind of fundamental research in the space. And I think definitely Justin has, uh, I thank him a lot for the, the progress in there. I mean, I'd say that, um, I mean, now it's pretty obvious that zero knowledge proofs are this mega trend within the blockchain space. You know, they address both scalability and privacy uh, to an extent. Um, and they unlock so so many so many things. Um, I mean, going back to you know what is the mandate, the the remit of the FM Foundation. I think a large part of it is um, supporting common goods and um, supporting the whole ecosystem beyond the layer one, even beyond layer two of Ethereum, but like the actual whole ecosystem. And um, the nice thing about zero knowledge proofs uh, right now is that it's so nascent that there's quite uh, a small number of experts and it's extremely collaborative and it's a lot of fun. What else is like Ethereum research? What else are you guys working on? Cause there, we just talked about like the zero knowledge group, but like, are there, do you separate it into different groups focused on different problems? Are you all one larger team that sort of move around between mm. problems? There's kind of different sub teams with different levels of kind of formality of their teamness. Like there's CBC, for example, is a sort of correct by construction Casper, and there's then a Vlad and Aditya and a couple of other people there. There's um, Rig, the uh, robust incentives group, which has sort of started uh, up uh, fairly recently, and it's uh, doing some economic analysis of uh, the protocol. <clears throat> and, and then otherwise, there's just people working on different problems. And within the um, cryptography team, we kind of have a split. So we have kind of the, the zero-knowledge people, which tend to be uh, designers or builders. And we're starting to build a competency in what I would call cryptanalysis, which is basically studying the fundamental assumptions that we're making and stress testing them and trying to break them. Because a lot of what we're doing, in fairness, uses assumptions which are fairly recent, fairly exotic, 
Um, and so one of the, the hires that we made uh, recently was uh, Dmitry Kovatovich, and we're hoping to grow this script analysis team. Hmm. So like when you say research here, like are, are you also building some of these systems out? Are you just specking them out? Like, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, when you when we talk about zero knowledge proofs, I know that there is like, recently, a lot more zero knowledge proof engineering work happening. Is that happening in the research team? Or is that more outside? Yeah, so like Barry Whitehead's uh, team, for example, has done uh, a lot of things like semaphore, the kind of zero knowledge uh, signaling stuff that's uh, done by them. And it's uh, been uh, gotten pretty far recently. And if Macy, the minimal anti-collusion stuff that's also um, come out of their team, and it's uh, close to having a workable version at this point. So there's definitely a specific kind of close to application layer things being built too. They've also um, started a uh, perpetual powers of Tau. And that powers of Tau is somewhat unique in the sense that it's uh, one of the biggest. I forget exactly how many monomials they have, but something like 2 to the 29 or 2 to the 28? 2 to the 28, as mm-hmm. I remember. Uh, which is pretty big. Um, so, you know, it'll take quite a bit of time to run on your computer, but um, if sufficiently many people do that, we're going to have a, a nice, uh, robust powers of Tau. What did you just call it? What kind of powers of Tau you just said? Aha, uh-huh, the monomials. No, 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 not that. Uh, it was perpetual. You, perpetual. perpetual. So yes. are, is this like universal? Yes. Is this like the exactly. same thing yes. or not? It's the updatable stuff, the universal stuff, which okay. is basically the future, I think, uh, all the other constructions, in my opinion, is like the beginning of the end. Does that mean like anyone can still join though? Is that like an ongoing? Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And traditionally, we've had these powers of tile where it's one participant at a time. And so that can be really slow. But um, kind of there was this recent observation where actually you can do powers of tile with like 10 people working at a time. So potentially we can have powers of tile which are 10 times bigger in terms of number of participants or 10 times bigger in terms of number of monomials. Hmm. I mean, I want to talk, so there's also some new structures where they, you know, you don't need the trusted setup. And I want to talk to you guys about some of your ideas on that going forward. But maybe before, like, before we move on to sort of the next section, I wanted to ask you about collaborations with other projects. So there are other projects already working on zero knowledge proof stuff. And I know that there's a connection with Zcash and with Starkware. And I'm just curious, like, kind of how those came about and if there's maybe some others that that we don't know about? I feel like I've been friends with uh, the Zcash people and Zuko in particular for many years now. Um, and, uh, you know, we've been going to a lot of the same events. Uh, we've, uh, in the IC3 bootcamp and, and that I mentioned, I uh, spent uh, quite a bit of time with their whole team and, you know, visited the Zcash offices and, their, and a couple of their conferences now. And they're a very solid uh, kind of technical team with and a very strong values, and I have kind of, a lot of deep respect for them. And also, it's definitely very helpful that you know, they're working on and interested in zero-knowledge proofs, and we're working on and interested in zero-knowledge proofs. What does collaboration look like between those two groups, though? Is it just sort of like a fr- friendly networks, or is there actual, like... We've co-funded things, I think. That's definitely been meaningful. Um, There's some overlap, like the stuff that you mentioned before, where the, the Ethereum network has implemented stuff like precompiles to help bring in Zcash stuff and like help interoperability in some ways or help to build stuff on top of Ethereum. I mean, I'm super pro collaboration and I'm trying to uh, push it forward. You know, my, my talk at DEF CON was on collaboration. Um, 
I mean, one of the teams I have a lot of respect for and we're very good friends with is the Protocol Labs team. So when I was a, a Bitcoin entrepreneur building Open Bazaar, Open Bazaar is built on lib P2P. So um, I got to know them uh, quite a few years back. And um, like the VDF project is also a great way to have uh, more friends because it's such an ambitious project that if you don't have friends, you're going to fail. Um, so at this point, you know, we have uh, four blockchain projects that are um, contributing funding. Um, so that's uh, Cosmos, uh, Tezos, uh, Protocol Labs, and Ethereum Foundation. And this is for the VDF collaboration. Yes. So we're yep. you know we're looking to build hardware. It's like you know roughly ten to fifteen million dollars. Um, but also you know lots of technical challenges, things like the RSA MPC and whatnot. Um, but yeah, we're you know we're also making collaborations with. Uh, you know, Chia, um, Solana to an extent with, you know, Near on uh, education to an extent. Um, Algorand is helping with the uh, um, BLS standardization effort. Um, and I'm hoping we can work with even more projects, things, you know, projects like, like Definity, for example. Uh, but, uh, you know, Definity have been hard to collaborate with because they're so secretive um, and they don't have much open source code. Hmm. But this is all still on the VDF front, right? What you just described? Or does that also cross over somehow into the zero-knowledge so, world? I mean, the VDF front is where there's been a lot of collaborations. But one of the other things that I've been actively involved with is the BLS standardization. And here, there was a lot of, you know, herding cats. Uh, you know, let's all use BLS 12.381 as the blockchain standard. And through this effort, you can make new friends. And that's kind of an interesting point of collaboration where it's not necessarily that you're sharing engineering efforts or even sharing research, but you're trying to get some sort of standardization. And to do that, you inevitably have to collaborate somewhere. Right. And I think one of the future areas for collaboration will be Wasm, because we have all these blockchain projects building on Wasm. And right now, from what I can tell, there's almost no collaboration, which is drives me crazy. That's yeah. weird. Really? Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, it's it's a kind of a strange thing where everyone has their opinions because the differences on the bytecode is none. Like bytecode-wise, basically all look the same. So it's like which what what the host interface looks like. And yeah, like some projects like Near have like an asynchronous model and some have a synchronous model and that makes a very big difference and like it's a fundamental if you have a difference of opinion on things like that, then you're just never going to be able to agree because it's like Mac versus Windows people. Like, it's just, they're not going to agree. <laughs> but it's not for any real reason. But it's it's kind of happening. So I was at this uh, Wasm uh, conference last year, and uh, we had some of the Mozilla people over, and they were talking about the WASI standard, which is you know a host interface standard to run Wasm programs on your computer and interface with like a Unix type interface. Um, and we actually got the Mozilla people to kind of agree that it would make sense to have like a blockchain subset of Wasi. Uh, and like that, I think that's a good like thing to pursue. Yeah. Huh. That's actually, that's another, that leads to another question about this. Like, are you also seeing collaborations with other organizations, maybe non-blockchain related organizations, other open source communities? And academic groups are definitely the, the first place to start. We've had a very long-running collaboration with uh, IC3, um, collab recently with uh, Stanford CBR, which uh, we were one of the founding uh, sponsors of. 
and you know Misego, another an Ethereum project, is another one of them. Um, <clears throat> then academic groups in uh, kind of in Israel of very of uh, various kinds, though that that's been a bit informal. Um, Alessandro Achiesa and uh, his uh, his team as well at Berkeley. Yeah. And um, VDFs is also a great magnet to get uh, academics interested. Um, so we j we had VDF Day number four just before the Stanford Belgian Conference, and there was um, about uh, I think thirty percent of the room was academics. There was seventy people, and um, they came from nine different universities from four different countries. Cool. Actually, we uh, one other group that we haven't spoken about yet is Starkware. What is the relationship with Starkware? The Ethereum Foundation and have paid uh, or give a grants to us uh, Starkware to uh, basically work on hash, uh, Stark friendly hash functions. Right. I mean, the bigger picture is um, Starks is like the bet that we want to place for quantum security for Ethereum 3.0. Um, so the cool thing is that zero knowledge proofs are so flexible that they can be kind of this um, massive power tool to. S to, to rule them all. So it can do signatures, it can do proofs of custody, it can do VDFs, it can do everything. How do you see, I mean, we kind of touched on this a little bit before, the the difference between snark or generally ZKP constructions that need a trusted setup versus those that don't. Like, how do you see the space of those that don't need a trusted setup, like transparent proofs? Right, so um, in the last year, um, so it used to be, I think, mainly stocks from Starkware that, ha yeah. that were transparent, but now there's a competition in this space. Um, so um, it turns out that if you have uh, a polynomial commitment, you can have universal snarks. And so the question, and the, the question becomes, you know, um, can you have polynomial commitments with, which are transparent? Because then the snark will inherit that property. Um, and it turns out that there they are. So you can use um, a, the dark polynomial commitment, which is um, using class groups. There's no trusted setup there. And just a few days ago, there was this massive um, kind of announcement in the cryptography space where there's a, a new type of group of unknown order called uh, Jacobian groups of uh, hyperlectic curves of genius three. And uh, they also don't have a trusted setup and they have very nice performance properties. Is that coming out of like snark research or is this somewhere else that this exists? Well, so what happened is that 2019 was the, the, the revolution for universal snarks. And now there's like so much attention to these polynomial commitments because they, it's a very nice framework um, to work in. And, um, you know, one of these polynomial commitments that was found recently was the, the dark ones. And that, um, Kind of led to uh, that. That led to um, the the need for more groups of unknown order, um, which are actually the basis for VDFs and and uh, accumulators and vector commitments and all these these other things. So, um, if if it wasn't for all the blockchain applications, we I don't think we would have today this group of unknown order and this interest and like this this sort of like yes. attention on it. One of the amazing things about the Ethereum brand being an Ethereum researcher is that you send an email to an academic, the probability that he will reply to your email excited is extremely high. Wow. <laughs> nice, yeah. 
Who who was it that came up with the Jacobian version? Um so I think there's this is a famous guy called Galbraith, I believe. Actually, um it's I think most of the credit goes to his PhD student. Uh, I forget his name, but um one of the interesting things is that uh Dan Bonet months ago, um I think in November, um he had this intuition that yeah, we can use uh hyperlytic curves. But uh, there was this one problem that he couldn't crack. Uh, and it seems like these guys uh, came up with a clever idea. We're definitely, after this, we'll go find this article. Mm -hmm. or, sorry. Yeah, we'll try to find the paper and put it in the show notes. Totally. Mm -hmm. Speaking of groups of unknown order, we just had uh, Luca DeFeo on to talk about uh, isogenies. And there's one interesting problem in there that's like, that. that's what I'm looking forward to in this space. When we can construct elliptic curves of unknown order without a trusted setup so he says there shouldn't be a reason we can't do this it's just that no one knows how to do it yet wait doesn't goof's algorithm just work on elliptic curves or um... you mean in the context of isogenies yeah but so uh, the the reason this came up is to do isogenies based vdfs you need to get to uh, uh, an elliptic curve of unknown order. And the only way that we currently know how to get there is to do random walks across the space of all elliptic curves using isogenies. And then, so that, that random walk requires a trusted setup then. So the way that I understood uh, what, um, um, what was said is that um, basically you want... Um, to have an elliptic curve where you don't know the endomorphism group. Um, and so the idea is that you start with a hyperelliptic curve and then you do this random walk. Um, and so long as one of the participants is honest, then you'll get to a point where your elliptic curve has unknown endomorphism group. Yeah. And he said that mm -hmm. there is a way to get that without the random walk. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Putting it out into the universe. Yeah, with this. hoping that some <laughs> listener will solve this problem. <laughs> cool. So next up, I want to explore a little bit more how zero-knowledge proofs are being used kind of throughout the ETH2 construction, how you're thinking about them, where they fit. We've kind of covered Ethereum research. We've covered some of the collaborations. We've touched on a few of the projects, but you have these great researchers in-house some of the research, as you mentioned, is going towards kind of like general public good. But I imagine there's also some really interesting applications within the construction, within the ETH2 model. So where are where do they live? Where do they exist? I think uh, kind of the most obvious place to start subdividing it is kind of thinking about layer one applications versus kind of layer two applications. And by layer two, I don't just mean scaling. I, well, I, I get fine. There's layer 1.5. There's also <laughs> application layer things. Right? Cool. So at the application layer, and we've been seeing mixers uh, get uh, in a fairly po popular recently. And you know, in Ethereum, there's been a bit of this kind of privacy awakening that's been starting. Um, there was this uh, incident a few weeks ago where I think one of the co-founders sold about 90,000 ETH and this transaction was detected and like the coin media um, talked about this and and then there was this other um, release by some uh, group that kind of traced a whole bunch of ENS names and so people are realizing that if their privacy is something that they should take seriously and the problem is that like you could 
consider trying to get privacy by kind of sending your coins to a different account, but then if you do that, then like the link between the new account and the old account is still kind of very detectable in the clear. And so what uh, Tornado Cash offers is basically a kind of ZK Snark based uh, mechanism that allows you to um, just d send coins from one account to another without kind of the link of who sends to whom actually being public because you know, you, a Zcash kind of style mechanism is used to enforce that. So that's <clears throat> something that's been getting a lot of attention. And then there's some other projects um, like on uh, ETH Research. Uh, there's one called a Zero Pool that was published. And there's also um, and this longer term thing called the uh, Aztec. All, by the way, all, all but zero pool not, but Aztec and Tornado, they've been on the podcast. So we can also add the links in the show notes if somebody They're wants wonderful. to hear more. Yeah. So uh, that, I mean, a lot of progress on the, uh, in the payment space. Um, and then also Macy, this is kind of minimal uh, anti collusion infrastructure. This is kind of basically kind of secure cryptographic voting where, you know, you want it to be anonymous, but then there's this additional challenge that you don't want it to be possible to prove who you voted for because then, like, you can bribe people to vote a certain way. And. They came up with a kind of spec for that that basically kind of relies on a central party for the collusion resistance, but does not rely on that central party for anything else. Um, and the yeah, Gitcoin uh, grants uh, quadratic funding people uh, kind of actually want to use this, right? Because uh, quadratic funding and kind of voting and all of these mechanisms in general, you know, have this pro this property that kind of you can spend one dollar of your own money to cause an impact to someone else's money, which is bigger than one dollar. And for, like you need that in any mechanism that kind of funds public goods and kind of counteracts the tragedy of the commons. But the problem is that once that property exists, then like a malicious recipient can just bribe people to to take this action, and then you know they they uh, spend one dollar, then uh, you get uh, or the bribery gets ten dollars, and then they kind of give five dollars back, and that kind of just breaks the whole mechanism, and you know Macy can kind of hopefully solve this. Hmm. Um, and all, then all of those that you just mentioned, those are all layer two. Those right? are all application layer. Yeah. Yes. If we were to look at um, layer one, um, it's kind of confusing because if you look at the phase zero and phase one spec, there's no snarks, and we don't probably won't have snarks in phase two either. Okay. Um, but the bigger picture is that um, you know there's there's kind of this separation between crypto economics and cryptography, and when I was doing research, you know, in sharding, uh, my motto was. If cryptography doesn't work, try crypto economics, because usually you can find a, a solution that works for crypto economics. But as you try and implement these things, you realize that actually the economics path is, is the devil. You kind of want to minimize it. So um, I think, um, you know, moving long term, we want to try and take some of these crypto economic systems, which have complexities around fraud proofs and challenge and response. And, you know, you, you have assumptions around rationality and honesty and things like that, and just replace them straight out with cryptography and it, the whole system uh, becomes simpler. Hmm. So now I want to talk about layer 1.5. And what you just said, this idea of going from the crypto economic to cryptography kind of interesting what's happened on one of the layer 1.5 projects roll up where it went well plasma ish like something very crypto economic to something cryptography to with zk roll up to optimistic roll up which is again game theory so how did that happen yeah so um 
ZK Rollup and I published uh, this in a V3 research post about uh, about it about a year and a half ago. And the goal there was just uh, to kind of show that, hey, you know, there exists this other category of scaling solutions and uh, can get you up to back then 500 transactions a second. Now, after we did the call data gas cost reduction in Istanbul, 2,500 transactions a second. And you can do this uh, with these really nice properties, like, you know, you don't need to really depend as much on central operators uh, and the system has kind of better ways of recovering from failure you can deposit and withdraw immediately and all of these other nice things um but the challenge with zk rollup there were two of them right so one of the challenges that we had upon immediately is uh zero knowledge uh, prover time is uh, very non-trivial. So I remember Matter Labs actually implemented a CK rollup pretty quickly, and uh, they said they even got up to over 100 TPS. I think it was on mainnet. Um, but the problem uh, is um, that like, the, the reason um, that they said they didn't get more is basically because their servers were kind of at full capacity generating these proofs. Um, and... The other challenge uh, that uh, the ZK rollup, I think, had or has is that people want to do more than just moving coins around. And I think this is uh, you know, the big thing that's also led to challenges for a lot of the other uh, Ethereum Layer 2 protocols, which is like people are on Ethereum precisely because they want to do more than just moving coins around. You know, people already have existing applications. They want to move their applications over. They don't want to rewrite their whole applications uh, in the process. And so the thing that people actually want is basically a layer two that just behaves like the EVM. And optimistic rollup is actually capable of providing that, right? You have to do a couple of clever tricks. Like you had the uh, optimism team, for example, have this really clever kind of code translator that takes uh, like the S-load opcode, for example, and they replace every um, instance of the S-load opcode with a call to a contract that checks a Merkle proof. They do the same with S-store, with the, do the same to kind of wrap external calls. Um, and then because uh, those other manipulations kind of change the code positions around, uh, for, they kind of add a, add a dictionary for a jump table. So they've, uh, there's a lot of tricks that you need to do to make it work. But like, with Optimistic Rollup, you actually can make something that does actually you know, the same thing that the EVM does. And that's something that a lot of people are attracted to. But do you think like, but ZK Rollup, you're still working on ZK yes. Rollup. So where does that live then? Where, how does that fit in? Like, is it still going to be used for certain cases or is it more like once it gets more efficient, it'll be fine? Uh, so the, the Loopring team, for example, has been uh, making a lot of progress on uh, ZK Rollup recently. Um, they yeah, published uh, some numbers with uh, a version they released uh, through Weedex about a month ago. And uh, they... Yeah, have implemented a ZK rollup for a decentralized exchange, and uh, the statistic uh, that they gave was uh, 0.3 cents per transaction for on-chain gas and 0.3 cents per transaction for the uh, prover uh, computing time. But like both of those numbers are still very far from optimal, right? Because on the one hand, uh, the 0.3 uh, cents for on-chain gas um, was there just uh, because uh, they had fairly low volume. And if they have higher volume, then the per-transaction gas cost, kind of the amortized amount goes down from about 2,500 or 4,500 that it was back then to a theoretical minimum of about 400. And 
If you have that, then of course the 0.3 cents becomes like 0.03 cents. And on the prover side, and one of them just kind of told me very recently that they made a, a factor of 30 improvements in prover time. And so it seems like they've been doing quite a good job of making ZK rollup work, at least for the DEX use case. Now, the final frontier, of course, is can you make a ZK rollup work for a general purpose computation? And that is still to be determined. I mean, that's kind of one of the crazy things that I'm you know, helping move the space move towards. Um, so, you know, there's like really the, like snarks are amazing in all respects now, uh, except probably for the, 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 the prover bottleneck. So how, how can we improve the bottle, the bottleneck there? And actually there's, there's, there's a few ideas here. So, um, one kind of obvious one is uh, hardware acceleration. So we've seen people use, um, use GPUs, for example, but once you become more ambitious, and you go with, for example, a, a snark ASIC, then um, you know you you can get you know a thousand x speed up. So I mean, the the, the rough ballpark right now um, is in terms of the comparison between native speed of a CPU and uh, you know the speed within a, a snark circuit is you know between a, a billion to a trillion. Um, X slowdown. So, you know, we need several 10x ideas to get to where we want to be. One possible kind of 10x idea that I'm excited about and I'm working on right now is um, this idea of a sparse snark. So, if you, like, as an analogy, um, think of a, a CPU. A CPU um, has about a single core has about a billion transistors and a CPU has about a thousand instructions that can be called. And when you call an instruction, the CPU will turn on the transistors for that one instruction and the rest of the chip is turned off. So that's called dark silicon. And the reason is that you want to save on power and you want to prevent the chip from just melting. Um, and maybe we can do something similar for, for, for SNARKs. So, it, you know, one of the holy grails is general purpose computation. Um, and that means like massive circuits. But that doesn't mean that um, you have, um, you know, all the wires and all the gates are turned on. So what you can do is you can set almost all the wires and all the gates to zero. Um, and then you want to try and use this sparseness to your advantage to accelerate the prover. Um, but in that case, is it like you're having other things use that sparseness, like use that space? Or is it just speeding it up because you're not using those, that space? It's sped up because you're not using that space. Got it. Yeah. So, you know, one of the typical examples is you want to do a conditional in a snark. It's like, you know, if, let's say, A equals B, or if A not equals to B. Like in a traditional snark circuit, you have to pay 2x the cost, like for both branches. And that's very expensive. You, you have this blow up. Um, but if you can activate only one branch at a time, that's a huge benefit. Um, so, you know, going back to what I said around, you know, the key is a polymer commitment. That is your starting point. So, um, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we discovered a, uh, a sparse polynomial commitment scheme that could use the sparseness. And then you can do so-called sparse Hadamard checks. Uh, and, you know, and that might unlock sparse snarks. Um, um, what's that called? Which one? What you just said? The sparse? Snarks? Sparse snarks. Sp it's called spar well, sparse that, snarks. That, that's how I'm calling them. <laughs> uh, because uh, sparse polynomial commitment is a very natural term, which other people are using. And then that kind of extends to like the other tools in the stack. Cool. I like the name. Yeah. 
I mean, another idea that I'm working on is trying to simplify the prover. Um, and in particular, when, when you look at the prover, there's basically three components in the prover. There's the, the witness generation, which you know, today tends to be negligible, like let's say 1% of the prover time. And then you have the FFTs, which tends to be like 20%. And then you have the multi-experienciations, which is 80%. Now, okay, you want to try and speed up the 80%. And you, let's say you build an ASIC. But let's say you bring this 80% down to zero. Now you're still left with the 21%, the 20%. So you've only sped up the whole thing by, by 5x. So now you need another ASIC, basically, that will do the FFTs. So what if we can just simplify the problem and remove the FFTs? And also the FFTs are, are, are you know, a pain in the neck because um, they're not super friendly to distribution. You know, they can be paralyzed, but they have these, these choke points and you know, um, not super friendly to you know, full, full, full distribution. And they're quite expensive in terms of, of memory. So uh, I've been working on a polynomial commitment scheme where you completely remove the FFTs. And then you can do the same thing, a harder mod check with no FFTs and then the snark without FFTs. What, what do you put in its place, though? Do you just take them out? Like, how do you, why, why doesn't everybody take them out? Well, for a long time, people <laughs> believed that it was not possible to take them out for fundamental reasons. Okay. And I think that discouraged a lot of people from going down that route. Um, but, you know, I came in, you know, naive and uh, with fresh <laughs> eyes. And I guess, you know, there was a few tricks that had to be found. Um, actually, Vitalik helped along the way. Dan Bonnet helped along the way. Um, and yeah, it turns out you can do it. Um, so uh, if we are going to build a SNARK ASIC, which uh, I think we are, uh, and I think it's going to be a collaborative project for the blockchain space, then we will focus on the multi-exponentiation. We can just forget about the FFTs. You just mentioned sort of three optimization things. You said get rid of FFTs, uh, hardware, so like using ASICs, and the sparseness. Right. Is there anything else that would optimize? Right. So, um, I mean, one kind of recent idea is this idea of uh, custom gates. So that goes down to how you lay your circuit. And that's, that's a big area for improvement where... Um, so if you think the hardware analogy kind of works well. So um, if, you, if you're building an ASIC, you know, you have this so-called cell library. Um, now, you could build everything, you know, in theory out of NAND gates. But actually, um, what happens in practice is that you have these cell libraries with, with hundreds of gates that will do more complex operations. And by using these, these slightly bigger so-called cells, rather than the primitive gates, you get quite a lot of speed up. And so the same thing is happening. And, and this is something that is being led by the Aztec team. Um, so for uh, like a perfect example is, uh, let's say you have a, a, a hash function like memc, where you're basically re repeating an internal round function. If you have a custom gate for this internal round, um, then you, you, you can really get a lot of performance benefits. Mm. And then like another really exciting idea, which um, lots of people are working on, um, and there's now lots of different ways to do, is, is, is recursion. So rec recursions help with in, in, in two ways. One is that um, if you do, for example, one layer of recursion or a constant number of layers of recursion, then you get a, um, a, a, a constant improvement in the in the verifier time so you can take for example a thousand snarks and compress those into one single snark so there you go you have a, a thousand x improvement on 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 the verifier time um, but you can go even further and you can you can have these um, 
systems where you always only have one single snark at the very tip of your system. And so that's something, for example, that, that Coda is working on. And it's very exciting. Mm. Yeah, we've, we've done, I think, two episodes on recursion so far. Yeah, cool. And the cool thing is that the, these ideas tend to compose on each other. So, you know, let's say we have roughly 10, like five, you know, 10x ideas. Uh, we need another five in order to get to where we want to be. The other kind of thing that I think we want to optimize is range checking. Yes, um, actually, there there is a paper coming out in a couple of weeks. On range that. checking? Yes. I don't know if I know this. Just verifying that a number is between 0 and 2 to the 63 or whatever, so you don't overflow. So what tends to happen is that you, you have your, your polynomial commitment, and then you build gadget out of it. So you can have a uh, permutation gadget or a shift gadget or a sum gadget or product gadget. And one of the gadgets, which is used very, very often, especially when you're doing like big integer arithmetic and things like that, is a range check gadget. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 as I understand, um, so like a few days ago, there was this really nice idea basically showing how you can use polynomial commitments as a range check gadget. Um, and from what I understand, in a couple of weeks, there should be a write-up um, with pretty exciting ideas where you can batch these range checks. This is kind of sort of unexplored territory, though, right? These are just like ideas at this point, or? Um, I mean, the, the amazing thing is that there's, there's so much low-hanging fruit. Um, so, like, I, you know, we, you, you've seen, right, in 2019, how much, how many papers were published on a, on a continuous basis. Um, and, you know, even in 2020, we're finding ideas, new ideas, you know, um, like every week, pretty much. So, uh, yeah. Why do you think there is that acceleration in, in this space? There's so much happening. Is it just that more people are looking at it, that hardware got good enough that we can do it? Or what's, what's the you know, uh, catalyst here? I think a lot of people with kind of a pragmatic and engineering mindset kind of um, gave up on zero-knowledge proofs as being kind of a unicorn magic that is uh, not really useful. But I think Zcash was like the big moment where everyone woke up like this is actually real. Um, and, you know, we've had this education period, which has been somewhat painful. And, you know, Vitalik has done a great job trying to educate uh, people on these on these difficult topics. Um, and now we're at a point where the people with both kind of uh, engineering and research hat on um, are here to solve questions that are less about, for example, asymptotics. You know, the researchers, they love asymptotics, uh, whereas the, the engineers, they love constants. Um, so, yeah, the ball is being handed off to the engineers. Yeah, actually, that's nice that you just mentioned the the papers or the blog posts that you wrote, Vitalik. You wrote, what was it, like four on snarks? Three on snarks, one on Planck, three on Starks. Yeah, and I know that those are actually like pretty important resources in the community. When did you write the snarks one? I think it was like 2016 to 2017. Quite mm. long ago. And Planck would have been really recent. Yes. And Starks was like in the last two years? Yes. Cool. Yeah, we'll definitely link those as well. I know that they've been a resource that a lot of people have learned from, myself included. And I think one of the things that's difficult in our space is that if you take a, a research paper, you're going to have a 20 to 30, sometimes 50, 60 page thing, which is undigestible. And like, generally speaking, 
the the intuition, the core part is like hidden on page 15, second paragraph, and it's like a few lines. Um, and I think one of the trick is, you know, to be able to identify this and remove all the crap. And I think Vitalik has a, has a skill for that. Cool. So we've talked about the application layer, layer kind of 1.5. So what about layer one? We mentioned ETH three <laughs> earlier. Um, is that where some of this is starting to come in or are you, are you already imagining you know, applications of zero knowledge proofs on layer one? Yeah, and I think in general, like we have a long-term goal of trying to kind of fit in zero knowledge proofs in places to just remove as much as possible of the need for like lots of nodes to re-verify the same thing, um, for fraud proofs uh, to uh, kind of cover cases where people did things incorrectly as part of uh, things like data availability ch uh, checks, for example. So in a lot of like any kind of places where right now we have some kind of more complicated protocol for collectively verifying something without having everyone personally verify it, like a lot of those cases are situations where you can just simplify things a lot by just slotting a zero knowledge proof in. Cool. Are there any other? There's. I mean, yeah. are there a lot of places that you're looking at it? There's a handful. I okay. mean, one example, for example, is um, single secret secret leader election. So the idea here is that, um, okay, so you have these validators, you sample them at random using randomness, but right now the result of the so-called lottery is public. And so you're going to know who's going to be called to participate in the future. And so that's a denial of service attack vector because you can do a network DDoS, but there's also other attacks like you can try and bribe them with a smart contract or whatever. Um, so one of the great mitigations here is um, you have a lottery where you don't know who the winner is. Um, and there's a very, very nice scheme that Lamponet and others uh, came up with that we're looking to, to implement. And one way to implement it is using an, a zero-knowledge proof. And that's the kind of a clean way of doing it. And then there's this other way, which is kind of using cryptoeconomics, which you know, we can possibly implement uh, faster, get off the ground faster, but it's, it's, it's more ugly. Another place where I think there's a lot of potential for SNARKs is uh, in witness compression. Right. In, in phase two, we have this idea of stateless clients. Stateless client is when the validators don't store the state. They only store kind of this small digest, so-called uh, like accumulator, which could be, for example, a, a Merkle root. And um, to counterbalance the fact that the validators don't have the state, the users themselves, when they make transactions, they need to come with their own state and proves that the state is actually real. So the Merkle path all the way to the Merkle root. And in practice, if you were to take, for example, um, ETH1 today, and you were to go in this stateless model, you'd have a huge overhead in, these, in terms of bandwidth uh, for these uh, Merkle paths, uh, you know, on the order of 10x. So what if we could take all these uh, Merkle paths and compress them into a single snark uh, and remove this 10x overhead? Cool. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, data availability checks are another one. So this is this other end of branch of research that I've been doing for about three years now. And I published that paper with uh, Mustafa back in uh, 2018, where I uh, 
have this scheme where basically you take some data and then you kind of erasure code that data using this kind of two-dimensional uh, Reed-Solomon code. And the idea there is that the erasure coding kind of transforms a yeah, kind of make sure 100% of the data is their problem into a make sure 50% of the data is their problem. And once you only need to make sure 50% of the data is there, then you can use kind of random sampling to figure out whether or not enough data has been published in kind of constant time. This is kind of a key technology that we want to use for just kind of scalably validating that the data in blocks actually uh, uh, that have been proposed actually has been published. And the technique that we proposed in 2018 um, is one that is uh, very dependent on fraud proofs. And in order to make the fraud proofs work, we have to use a 2D code instead of a 1D code, and that has a suboptimal rate, and like, there's some annoyances in it. But... Um, we have a number of kind of alternative proposals. So like one of them involves polynomial commitments and then the other one involves basically just using a snark to prove that a Merkle root of erasure coded data was uh, constructed correctly. At what phase is that right now though? Cause it sounds like you're, it hasn't been decided. It's like there's some possibilities, but. Yeah, definitely after phase one. Got it. I mean, like the final thing that comes to mind is is very much related is um, around proof of custody. So proof of custody is another mitigation um, in addition to the data availability checks for the data availability problem. Um, and right now we have a fraud proof based scheme and it would be very nice if you could have uh, a pure um, cryptography scheme. So the the idea is very is very simple. Basically, you have data that you want to prove that you have at the time you make a signature. So what you do is you take a secret and you mix it in with the data. So what you could do is you could have a zero knowledge proof saying that you've correctly computed the Merkle root of the data mixed with the secret, and that proves that you have had the, should have had the data. Another application you kind of touched on this with when you talked about Starks is post-quantum security for the chain. Like, when does that enter the picture? Um, it's, this is definitely something that you know, we're designing the protocol around sort of being able to upgrade uh, to eventually. Like there's, there's some few parts of the protocol that are not quantum secure at the moment, but like for every single thing that we use, we definitely want to have the ability to kind of switch to an existing and ready uh, quantum safe alternative uh, when we want to. Um, the one that's probably the toughest at the moment is aggregate signatures. So post-quantum signature schemes exist, but as, and even hash-based uh, quantum signature schemes exist, but kind of post-quantum aggregation-friendly signature schemes has definitely seen kind of considerably less attention. Um, and using uh, snarks, or in, in this case, starks, uh, which apparently are a type of snark now, um, to solve uh, this problem. So like basically just using a Stark to prove the existence of a bunch of Lamport signatures, for example, is one of the paths to solutions that we're looking at. Though, in order to actually make that be possible, like we're definitely going to need some very significant uh, improvements in prover time. The whole difference between Snark and Stark is funny. And like everyone has uh, different opinions on what a snark is and what a stark is. Basically, the consensus seems to be that whatever comes out of starkware is a stark and everything else is a snark. Mm. 
you know, the totally unconsidered mental intuition that I had started with for some reason is like, if it uses uh, elliptic curves, it's a snark. If it uses hashes, it's a stark. And if it uses hidden order groups, it's a dark. And then I started talking to people and then I realized other people have totally different ideas yeah. and like, I, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on, on the topic of um, the, you know, the quantum secure signatures that can be aggregated you know this is a very hard problem and this is also an opportunity for us to collaborate with academics so we're currently working with a group called uh, cryptonex and you know they have um, jean-charles fougere and ludovic perret uh, both experts in um, quantum security so um, yeah we have a team working on that like is there anything in the construction right now that is similar at all to like what cello's been doing with this like light client construction you sort of mentioned this data availability is that related somehow are you guys are you thinking about creating sort of like sm like smaller light clients using zero knowledge proofs um i that's definitely is the sort of thing that we want to do kind of longer term um so I guess, and if the recursive Sonark kind of like verify everything in one proof stuff, um, that that verifies uh, data validity. So if you download a block, then it can prove to you that that block is the latest block in a chain where the entire history is correct, and possibly even prove to you and that that chain is uh, is better th uh, in terms of kind of consensus priority than any other chain that you've seen. But the thing that I can't prove to you by itself is that the data in the chain actually has been published. And even if all the data is correct, you can do lots of really mean things by withholding data. You can basically withhold information that other people need to um, make their own transactions and kind of send things from other accounts. And so it's kind of almost equivalent to stealing from people. Hmm. And and what uh, data availability checks let you do is basically kind of randomly sample of all of the data in the chain. And if the data is erasure coded, then you just kind of randomly check that at, with very high probability, at least enough of the data has been published that um, if necessary, the entire thing can be reconstructed. Hmm. I'm curious to, to poke your minds uh, on something that is... I know without naming names, some companies that have now gone, we're not allowed to talk about zero knowledge proofs anymore. Can't mention really? it in, in the office. Become, because it becomes a practicality thing where everyone, instead of actually trying to solve the problem, go, ah, zero knowledge proof will fix that. Whatever, we'll keep oh. working. <laughs> and like, zero knowledge proofs will fix that. And like, just kind of passing the ball. I mean, I think that might make sense as a policy. I mean, unless you're very serious and you have people that are dedicated to it. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd say a very similar, you know, comment maybe for blockchains even. Like, you have all these companies that say, oh, blockchains will solve everything. Unless you have, you know, at least one blockchain expert in your team, blockchains is probably not for you. <laughs> um, I've also heard companies, I know some companies where they hired a zero-knowledge proof researcher to kind of look into it, but then realized that the space was moving so fast and they maybe didn't have the capacity to fully contribute or fully keep up. So they've sort of taken a step back and been like, let them figure it out and then maybe we'll add a zero-knowledge proof back into our system. I mean, this is almost the opposite of uh, a problem that we that we had in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is that, you know, no one um, wanted to 
you know, built stuff on Ethereum that were, or, if, or Bitcoin that was high volume because if they were successful, then, it, then you know, there wouldn't be support for them. The, the system um, basically w wouldn't adapt fast enough. But here's the opposite problem where um, the, 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 the system is just adapting too fast that you can't even keep up with it. Yeah, and in a way, that's, that's sort of true. Like if somebody's going to put in the resources to implement one of these things, and actually, this this was this was a topic that came up with like ETH one. This idea that like certain I'm not going to say this right, but certain curves were. Yeah, I mean, the precompile that we talked about before that was yeah. added, then Zcash upgraded and <laughs> like not using that curve anymore, so it's kind of pointless that it was added. And now we need to add like the next one. And yeah. uh, I mean, that was a particularly unlucky case, but yeah, it, is a, it is a good point. Yeah, this is definitely a problem that a lot of uh, NF projects just have to deal with. Like at some point you have to just choose and say, right now we're building with this set of technologies. And like, yes, we know that that means that we have to do this stupid multi-round uh, trusted setup. And then uh, maybe four months later and maybe 10 months, uh, 20 months later, Plonk is going to be ready to use. And uh, uh, that whole effort will have been for nothing. But I mean, 20 months in the future, like people might be yeah, talking about, well, why use Plonk when uh, Plonk uh, 2.0 is going to be ready? So I hear they just actually add letters before Plonk. So it's Slonk, it's uh, what did Ariel had another one. This this problem of curves that you bring up is, is very serious. Um, and it kind of goes against the whole universality revolution that we're seeing. And the reason is that for different use cases, you want different curves. So, you know, you have BLS12381, which is the standard we're going toward, but then you have this other curve, BLS12377, and then you have the MNT4, MNT6 cycle, and then you have the BN254 cycle, which is the legacy curve, which is the only one that the firm supports. So that's what everyone is building on in practice. Um, and you know this is this is gonna. I think unfortunately this is gonna hurt us. Um, maybe one of the kind of uh, advertisements for the RSA-based uh, snarks is that they're in several ways truly universal. So there's no kind of bike shedding on the type of RSA group. There's only one type. I mean, you can choose your the the bit size, but you know, you'd, you'd think that people would agree on, let's say, 3000 bit um, RSA group, that's plenty of security. But the other interesting thing about these um, RSA based snarks is that they're not bounded in circuit size. So you have a powers of tau, it only goes up to, let's say, 2 to 28. Um, and if you want to go beyond that, you have to restart your powers of tau from scratch, whereas you don't have this limitation with RSA groups. One more use case of uh, snarks that might be relevant is um, in Casper CBC, uh, the validity um, conditions for blocks are kind of very simple conceptually, but they're kind of fairly involved and complicated to actually verify. Uh, so the validity condition basically says that for a block to be valid, the block must be the uh, the block's parent must be the winner of the fork choice rule executed using all information that has been included into that block or its history. Um, and like there's a really nice and clean kind of mathematical intuitiveness to this, but the problem is that this takes kind of O of N time to evaluate. And Snarks are something that can possibly help with this. So I think we've, I mean, we've come a long way. 
I think we have a way better understanding of what's going on with zero knowledge proofs in the ETH2 world and all of at like at all the different layers. But I think a nice way to close out this episode would be to talk a little bit more about this future idea for it. You sort of mentioned Starks and ETH3, but where else, like what else are you looking at in terms of just like the larger zero knowledge proof ecosystem? Are there other places that you're just sort of keeping your eye on or other ideas? And there's also enough areas of cryptography other than zero knowledge proofs, um, multi-party computation, homomorphic encryption, code obfuscation. There's definitely quite a lot of use cases for each of those. Do you, are you hopeful that those will exist anytime soon? Or like, if you imagine 10 years from now, like, which of the, these things are in practice? And MPC kind of already exists, but it's uh, not efficient for all things. And I definitely expect the set of things that MPC is efficient for to improve. The question is just by how much. I mean, the RSA MPC is really pushing the boundary. Um, so we're doing a, I think the record for the MPC is, it was actually set by Aztec. So they had 173 participants. Oh, yeah. And it, the, the ceremony lasted one month. We're looking to do an MPC with over a thousand participants. And if all, everything goes fine, it should run in about 10 minutes. Um, so we're really like shattering the, the the records here. You mean like ten minutes per participant, like on their computer? Ten minutes total for what? All participants. What? So the catch here <laughs> is that all participants need to be online at the same time, <laughs> and if one of them disconnects, we need we identify them. So it's you have identifiable abort, uh, and then you have to restart. So oh. that's why I say in the best case it's ten minutes, but we'll see. Whoa. Yeah. It's uh, 10 times F minutes in BFT lingo. <laughs> right. Ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, one thing I'm quite excited about, uh, just from a, a nerdy perspective, is the, the uh, IO, like indistinguishability obfuscation. Um, like a piece of magic, which, um, you know, as far as I understand, can be unlocked by this cryptographic primitive called trilinear maps. So we have bilinear maps with the pairings, you know, which gives us snarks and which give BLS signatures. When you go to trilinear, three is so much better and you can do IO. Um, and just, you know, a couple of days ago, there was a, a new paper by, uh, by Huang, who apparently is very well respected uh, with a very promising construction. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, we had Dan Bonnet um, on the the show, and we he, at the end he talked about what he's looking forward to and challenges that are unsolved. And he mentioned trilinear tri maps and and code obfuscation as a, one of the big unsolved problems that he's very excited about. And I yeah, after that I looked into it. It's just like holy shit, this this changes the whole landscape of smart contracts. It it just it does so much like it's amazing i i didn't know that there was like actual results and that's, that's super exciting i mean i mean just for the listener who doesn't know what it is i mean one of the consequences is that you can have a small contract which holds a secret in the code of the contract so you can have a secret which performs a specific task um, so, for example, it will only sign a message if the message has a certain structure. Um, but at the same time, even if the code is public, no one can go extract the secret and sign messages that the contract was not meant to sign. Some of these ideas, are, I mean, they're going past blockchain, right? This is not a particularly blockchain-focused concept, is it? They have very interesting, cool applications in blockchain, but no, certainly go way beyond blockchain. Yeah. 
Do you do you do either of you sort of see or are you excited about zero knowledge proof past blockchain or outside of blockchain? Because I know that that is something that I'm starting to see bubbling up. So one of the things that I've observed is that a lot of smart people that I've tried to hire say, no, I don't want to join because blockchain, I, I'm not fully convinced yet, you know, it's kind of, but then you tell them, you can learn about zero knowledge proofs and then they can see a career there because it's, a, it's an easier sell. Um, they can see that even if the blockchain world would go to zero, the zero knowledge proofs are huge applications in, in industry. And I think kind of the blockchain space is going beyond blockchain. And this is uh, kind of one thing that I'm excited about. And I guess what I mean by that is uh, just the communities that are trying to kind of build things on blockchains and trying to build some decentralized finance constructions, DAOs, and all these other things. Like, there's, I think, definitely a real, uh, kind of increasing realization that kind of the blockchain isn't the only tool that they should be using. And the right solution and kind of probably involves uh, using a blockchain for some things, but it might end up including you know, some com uh, components of an MPC architecture, some, comp uh, some components of something else, uh, and just uh, kind of branching uh, kind of out, um, um, out and so just thinking about it as kind of how do we use cryptographic and economic tools to kind of build the things that we want to build. Oh, that's a good way to think about it. I want to say thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank you so much. That was great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, And I, I definitely want to extend an invitation to both of you to come back and maybe do deep dives on some of these topics that we covered or some others if you have some ideas. Yeah, thank you very much. It was awesome. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>